Hi, this is Corey Olson, and welcome to Students of the Word. This podcast consists of recordings of the weekly Bible study I've started running in February of 2022. I'm doing close reading, uh, which means we're going very slowly, thinking really carefully about the words, how everything fits together, and then, of course, also thinking about what this means for us and what we do with it. Thanks for listening, and I pray that God will bless the reading of his word as we study together. Okay, welcome to episode 11, in which we start chapter 2 and get ready to begin a new paragraph, only to decide pretty much right away that we're actually still in the same paragraph and didn't actually finish it after all. Uh, This is an awesome verse. It's one of my favorites uh, in this whole section. I love the both sides that, you know, so the both sides of the sinning question uh, that John is bringing to our attention here. Really powerful stuff. So I hope you enjoy our discussion today. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Students of the Word. This is session number 12. And today is a very big day because we are going to start chapter two today. Uh, Having worked our way verse by verse through chapter one, Uh, We now turn to chapter two. Now, of course, keep in mind, of course, it's hard not to get excited about starting a new chapter or to feel a sense of accomplishment in completing a chapter. But of course, the chapters are all uh, modern editorial. uh, I was about to say affectations, but that sounds a little harsh, right? I don't mean that in a harsh way. Very useful. Chapters and verses, very useful. But uh, when we're trying to sort of follow the flow of uh, John's thought in this epistle, Chapters and verses are uh, only um, uh, are less useful, right? Are less useful, and and it's important for us to remind ourselves uh, that they are editorial. They are later editions. They are not uh, how you know the. This is true, of course, the entire Bible. Uh, it's not how the Bible writers thought. Um, they certainly weren't thinking in terms of. Uh, of verses, right, of little chunks like that, um, nor are the divisions necessarily the ones that I think I would always myself do. Um, uh, in fact, today is a really good uh, sort of example of that. Let's, um, um, let's, because the first thing I want to do is I want to look at the relationship between verse one and the chapter which came before, right, the verses which came before. Um, this break, here between chapter one and chapter two is uh, one of those that, you know, I'm not really sure actually if I would have put, put a chapter break there, if it had been up to me. Um, But let's, uh, let's, let's take a look. We have a whole new passage of text to look at. So here's one through four that we looked at and then five through 10. Um, Chapter two begins, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him. So, if we go back, right, I have to admit that I kind of think that those first two verses seem to be part of this same idea to me, right? Um, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Doesn't that kind of actually sound like maybe it should all be one paragraph, right? Um, Doesn't, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, sound like uh, a rhetorical end point there to that idea? And then the topic does seem to shift in verse three. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Um, And then he goes on to talk about a whole nother set of, um, if one says this, one is a liar, right? In parallel to what came before. So paragraph, uh, verse three sounds like it's definitely a new paragraph. Verse one and two, I don't really think so. So we finished this first chapter, but I'm not really at all sure that we did finish the second paragraph. We say we have not sinned. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. Always thought that felt a bit abrupt. My little chill. So let's, let's just sort of think about it in these terms. Now, um, but starting in on this verse, my little children, um, this is a really significant element, right? A really significant um, uh, sort of rhetorical technique on John's part, right? My little children, um, he's doing direct address. Now, have we gotten direct address before? I don't think we did get direct address before. We've gotten, we've we've, we've got the pronoun stuff that we talked about, right? We've gotten lots of we's and we've gotten the we's and the you's, right? In, um, uh, you know, and then the us's, the ours, right? In verse four and the you in verse three um, that heard from him and announced to you. Um, and then again, we's. And by the way, we didn't even, I haven't even been talking about this. Um, after all that time we spent looking at pronouns in the first paragraph, you'd think I would have mentioned this a little bit more, but notice that we've been in the first person plural all the way through uh, this second paragraph. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is, he's using the same inclusive we that he, I think, was using in the beginning. If we walk in the light, if we say we have no sin, if we confess our sins, if we say we have not sinned, all the way through, he's using first person plural. This is another reason why I tend to think he's using an inclusive first person plural from the beginning of the, again, for in paragraph one, as well. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so, uh, so, but he's not, this is his first address, my little children, my little children. And this seems to be hmm, idiosyncratic of John, right? Um, this word, uh, you can see it peeking at you over here on the left-hand side of the screen, technia, right? There it is. Technia, um, it's only used a handful of times, like seven or eight times in the New Testament, six or seven of which are in this epistle. There's only one other place in the entire New Testament where this word, my little children, is used, this, this address is used. And it's by John, it's sorry, it's by Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, Jesus says, um, you know, my little children, uh, it's, it's in the upper room discourse. 
uh, uh, where, where was it? I'm blanking on the verse right now. So if we go there, there it is. All right. Yes. Little children, yet a little while. Uh, am I with you? Right. Oops. Didn't mean to get a chart. Oh, that's cool. But I can't look at that right now. That's not the plan. Um, I always get so easy to get distracted. But yes, little children, yet a little while. Am I with you? Right. That's the that's the context of technia in the only other time it's used apart from in this epistle, right? So um, it seems to be a diminutive form, like the word technon uh, is, is my understanding. Again, I always subject myself to correction from people who know Greek better than I do, but technon is just the word for child, like a, like the generic noun for child. So technia, it's a, it seems to be, uh, it's translated little children because it's an affectionate diminutive. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's like a little affectionate nickname, basically. Um, it's, 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 it's a term of endearment, essentially. Um, uh, you know, like something you would call, um, something you would call your kids or your grandkids or something like that. Right. Um, so that's, a really interesting way for him to frame what he goes on to say, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? My little children. Um, and it's definitely my, my, right? Little children of me, right? We've got the genitive singular, uh, my little children, right? Um, my little children. Now, very likely this is, you know, he's talking about, you know, people who, uh, you know, he uh, led to belief, right? People whom he is, you know, his his students, the people that he has led to faith. Um, but I, but that itself doesn't, um, uh, oh, interesting. Randall, it's, um, it, it is used by Paul. I didn't find that it's, it's in the majority Greek text. I don't know what that is, Randall. Um, is that like a different manuscript or something of um, like, a, like a, an alternative manuscript of Galatians or something? That's interesting. Galatians too. It's a particularly interesting place for Paul to use that. Um, is it, is it, is it in the context when Paul is asserting his like uh, paternal authority over the Galatians? Is that, is that the context in which Paul uses it? Um, in one of the Greek texts, anyway, that's really interesting. Um, anyway, my little children, I am writing these things to you. And um, Hega, as you say, um, oops, sorry, as you say, Hega, we, we, we get back to um, uh, his explaining his reason for writing, right? I am writing these things to you. And we got that in verse four, these things we write, except who's in the plural that time, right? These things we write so that our joy may be complete right? Um, Once again, he goes straight for the purpose of why he's writing. We saw that he did that first, right? All of this revelation, right? What was from the beginning, what we've heard, seen, gazed upon, handled, concerning the word of life, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Um, He's again saying, um uh yeah he, he's again saying uh that 
I'm writing these things to you so that, right? This It's like, an, again, explaining the purpose of his writing. Now, notice he's saying grapho here, right? This is, this is uh, right, graph, graph, grapho. Yes, grapho. I am writing. First person singular here, right? My little children, I am writing these things to you. And notice we get the second person again. So he separates himself from them in this verse. He's been using we, 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 all the way through the whole second paragraph, right? Um, even the, we have heard, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. So even when he says you in verse five, he still says we, right? We have heard from him and announced to you. And then he is using this inclusive we, including himself, right? If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, if we walk in the light, if we say that we have no sin, if we confess it. So all of those if-then statements that we were looking at in the second paragraph are all inclusive. They're all we. And now he pulls himself back, right? He pulls himself out of the we, essentially, and says, I, for the first time. Has he said I? I don't think we've gotten an I once. First person singular. We've gotten first person plural. We've got second person. I don't think we've ever gotten an I. Right? So for the first time in the entire epistle, he pulls back and uses the first person singular. He addresses them, and it's in the sentence in which he does his first direct address. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? And that's, it's, so we've got two really interesting um, kind of rhetorical things going on there right um the 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 direct address and then the 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 personal first person singular statement i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin um both of those things i would say seem to me to have the effect of um seem to have the effect of making uh making a, a, a rather personal turn, right? Personal from himself, right? More intimate, Hege, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, more intimate in like in both directions, right? Both like addressing them more intimately, right? More particularly, not just kind of speaking in generalities, but like getting up in their face, right? Like I'm talking to you guys now, right? Um uh, you know, I'm talking to you and you know who you are, like that that kind of sense, but also intimate in the sense of talking about himself, right? Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, cool. Randall, could you quote Galatians 4.19 for me? That's really cool. I didn't know this. So this is, uh, uh, that's really cool. Galatians 4.19, the other use of technia. So yeah, if, Randall, if you could just quote that verse for me, uh, um, that would be, that would be, That'll be, that'll be cool. Okay. So, yeah, hang on a second. I can't handle it anymore. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do something. Ready? I'm going to do something. I just, I have to see it all in one place. Let's see what happens. Okay. There we are. I'm going to go back and forth between those two slides so often that I'm going to drive myself crazy. Uh, Okay. Let's just try this on for size. 
Let's just try this on for size and see if it works. Okay, great. So Randall says the My Little Children, the Technia reference from Paul is in Galatians, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Awesome. So it's not a paternal, it's, a, it's, his, it's his maternal image, laboring in birth. Yes. Uh, until Christ is formed in you. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So he's, um, it shows his connection with them. But yeah, there's, that's actually really interesting, isn't it? Uh, Paul associating that word technia um, with babies, like newborns for whom I labor in birth, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's, so it's not, it doesn't just have a pediatric association. It has a neonatal <laughs> association, right? Uh, it has a, 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 like infancy. Yeah, really interesting. Um, uh, right, and there's a verb form, which means to give birth to children. That's not surprising at all. Right, right. Yeah, so like, so it's, it's something more like the word for newborn then. That's really interesting. I am um, really tempted to import that connotation here. Wouldn't that be interesting? If it means not just little children, like toddlers or, you know, four-year-olds or something like that, but actual newborns, infants, right? My infants, my newborn children, right? My babies. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Um, that is, that is very interesting. That is very interesting. I don't know if I want to go that far. Uh, you know, there might be the way, and, and the reason, I, the reason I'm, I'm hesitating to go that far is that John's usage of it in this epistle and again, the first thing we can kind of look at ways, I mean, it's, it's important to look at ways in which words like this are used in other places in order to try to get a sense of it. But um, as I've said before, the, um, uh, the primary thing we always have to do is first look at how John uses it here in the epistle. Now, if, if there's a word that like he only uses once, then we got nothing right? We get no other context other than this one in order to help us understand this context. Um, but this is always true. Uh, always favor that. So, I mean, I, I've been saying this for many, many years in everything that I do, like whether we're, we're talking about Tolkien or whether we're talking about Shakespeare or something like that, like when you're reading Shakespeare, it's always important um, to look at how Shakespeare uses particular words before you import. Certainly, you got to be careful uh, with something like Shakespeare, not to import a modern connotation, a modern sense, something that's just alien to the way that the word would have been used in Shakespeare's world at all, right? That's a thing we always have to be cautious about whenever we're reading any kind of old text. Um, and, but even then, like Shakespeare, he did stuff with words. Like he was kind of idiosyncratic in some of his usages uh, and he would build these whole uh, uh, kind of contextual things, uh, right? About his... Um, about a lot of the words that he, that he uses. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, so, uh, so it, anytime you can find 
what seems to be like a, a clear pattern that emerges from the usage of a particular word within a single text, right? That's always the thing you want to go to first. The second thing you want to go to is ways in which that word is used in other contemporary texts, right? Um, at about the same time, things that were from people who are going to be making similar kinds of assumptions, right? Um, uh, about the world and stuff, I mean, um, uh, you know, and then uh, this is possibly one of the things that changed my view of language and words more than anything else. I used to love dictionaries. When I was a kid, I loved dictionaries. Um, uh, and then it was like a turning point in my life, a turning point in my life when I realized some dude just wrote the dictionary. <laughs> right? It was when I, I first studied um, I think it was when I first studied Samuel Johnson and his process of writing, because he was the guy who wrote the first English dictionary, um, and his process of how he wrote his dictionary, that um, I, I suddenly began to, and this was in college, I think, I suddenly began to realize, like, whoa, dictionaries, um, dictionaries were just written by some person or, you know, people, groups of people. Now I do appreciate dictionaries praise. I'm not, I'm not trying to diss them at all. Um, but the change that it made, like I, I used to have this thing, and I see it and hear it in other people still all the time, this sense that like the, the dictionary is like objective truth. It's like the, the, the book that nobody questions, right? Um, this is what the word means. How do they know? What the, who are they to say what the word means? Where do they get their information? Why do they think it means that? On what authority are they saying that it means that, right? Um, and sort of realizing that the only thing anybody can say about what a word means is by doing exactly what I'm talking about doing right now, like finding the patterns of how that word is used and trying to characterize those patterns, right? That's... that's um, um, uh, anyway, that's where, again, like it was kind of a life-changing moment for me uh, when I realized that's what underlay dictionaries. Uh, because again, that's a lot of people's impulse, right? Let's look this up somewhere. Let's look this up in a dictionary uh, and see what it means. Um, and um, anyway, okay. Uh, anyhow, uh, so yeah, for those who are uh, joined late, um, I came to a realization actually like when I was reading it through that I am becoming increasingly convinced that verses one and two of chapter two really belong as the end of this paragraph we've been discussing rather than as a new paragraph on their own. Um, and if we, and, I, and I'm, so I'm experimenting. I just, I literally just, uh, cut and pasted those two verses back onto this slide we've been using. Cause I want to, I want to think this through. I want to look at how this works um, because more and more, the more I'm looking at this, the more I think it does work anyway. Okay. So my little children, possibly my newborn children, right? I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What this does at the end of all of these if-then statements, all these first-person plural if-then statements as we go through, right? He's now turning and making it personal, right? Um, he's not any longer 
saying now he was already making the doctrinal statements a little bit personal, right? He was still using the first person plural with it. If we say, if we confess, if we say, if we walk, it was always about us, him including himself, right? And talking about all of us together. He was inviting us by using the first person plural, was inviting us to kind of put ourselves in these positions. If we do this, then this happens. But if we do this, then this other thing happens, right? Um, but here he he makes again, these two shifts, which make it even more personal. My little children, right? My babies. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You may not sin, right? Um, This is not theoretical. I want you to do this. And it brings me back to what I was saying uh, I don't know what last week or the week before um, that there's not uh, based on what John is saying here, there's no such thing as a nominal Christian, like nominal Christianity isn't possible. Just kind of like ticking a membership box and saying, okay, that's it. I'm good is not possible. Right. Like if um, this, if you are walking in the light, right? Like if you are, if you have fellowship, if you have koinonia with God, then it will show, you will know it. Like you will be transformed from darkness into light. Um, It has to, if it doesn't, then you're not doing it, right? Um, The way that he brings this to you, like, I really mean this. I say these things so that you may not sin. Um. That's the goal. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. That's the goal. You, I say this to you so that you may do th- my, my little children, my newborns. Um, very personal, very personal, but notice where he immediately goes. And if anyone sins, I love that. I love that. I just love that transition. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, but hang on, before we move on to that, I want to go back. Hega, you were talking about it very appropriately, the parallel between verse 1 of chapter 2 and verse 4 of chapter 1. The, I'm, the We write these things, right? What did he say the purpose was before? Well, he said the purpose before, oops, sorry. Hidden buttons here. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Right. That was why he was writing before, right? That our joy may be complete. And so therefore, I think that we should think about the parallel, right? I doubt he's forgotten the last time he said this, right? The last time he said these things I write unto you, though he said we before. Um, These things I write unto you that our joy may be complete. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? Um, those two things are therefore very clearly in parallel. And I think it's it's interesting to think about those two things together. Um, indirectly, we haven't been talking about joy, right? We're talking about sin, confession. These are not usually joy topics, right? Um but it gives us this glimpse. What's the picture 
that he's given to us of what life in koinonia with God looks like? That central image was if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, right? Um, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we won't be sinning because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness is able to come right into the presence of the light. Um, and um, uh, yeah, the, your sins being forgiven gives joy for sure. Hega, absolutely. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that, that it, to me, it infuses that idea walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Right. Um, which I think is what that you may not sin looks like, right? That is, those are the things that I would peril to, that's what complete joy looks like, I think, walking in the light as he is in the light, that your joy may be complete. How's that going to, how's that going to happen? Well, if you're walking in the light as he himself is in the light, if you're not sinning, then, then, then yes. If you've been cleansed of your sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness. Yeah. 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 Um, Complete joy, complete joy. Um, but anyway, back to the, back to his wonderful transition. I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, right? Um, it's like on the outside chance that you ever do commit a sin again, right? Well, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, what I love about this verse is that John is, in a sense, uncompromising in both directions, right? That is, he is not teaching perfectionism, right? He's not saying, once you're saved, you will never sin again. If you ever sin again, that means you weren't saved, so forget about it, right? Um, He doesn't say it's impossible. He emphatically says that it is possible for you to sin, right? Absolutely. Is it on the table? Continuing to sin still on the table? Oh oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember, that's what he just emphasized so forcefully in verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, right? Denial of sin now we talked about different sort of shades there, uh, but denial of sin is obviously a wrong thing, right? And yet he is also in compromising the other direction, but don't live there. Don't live there. Yeah. Yeah. Sin is going to, is going to, is going to happen, right? Sin is going to happen, but don't live there. He is uncompromising towards the attitude that would say, like, okay, if we have koinonia with God, we're never going to sin. He's like, no, of course, that's ridiculous. Um, I'm immediately going to add in, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus' role is advocate with the Father. I guess we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but he's equally uncompromising with the opposite view. The view which says, I am but a miserable sinner, right? Tell John, you're a miserable sinner. And he's going to say, no, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
If you're in darkness, get out of the darkness. What's wrong with you? Why are you still in the darkness? You can't remain in the darkness and still say that you have fellowship with God. Do you have fellowship with God? Do you believe that you have been cleansed of your sins? Do you believe that the, that Jesus is righteous to, to cleanse you from your unrighteousness? If so, why are you content to remain unrighteous? Why are you identifying yourself as unrighteous? That doesn't even make any sense. Stop sinning. Right? I'm writing these things unto you so that you may not sin. And if anyone says, what's the transition there? Hang, uh, I, I want to say, and Kai, yeah, Kai. And that's actually really interesting because let me, let me, let me look ahead for a moment. Uh, King James, uh, yes, and if any man sin, uh, NIV says, but if anybody does sin, that's what I was interested to see, the and versus the but. I knew there were some buts in here, uh, but in the NRSV also, but if you sin in the CEV, and but even in the message. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. John especially loves Kai. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we have to decide by context what that means. So, so Kai can be, is there a separate conjunction for bot or is that used? Um, uh, is that, can it be used for, for both? I don't really want to see all the usages of Kai. That might take a while. Um, <laughs> that's quite a bit there. Um, and even also. Okay, so day day is more, but. Um, okay. Yeah, the context given here is mostly the and. Um, Okay. Um, though day is more bland semantically. Okay. Well, you know, I can't have everything. Okay. Um, right. Day can be both as well. Okay. It's not that I think even in English, in the context, that it makes a huge difference here. There's some places where I think the and but difference can be very significant. I'm not sure I think this is one of those. Um, And if anyone sins, um, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father. Um, Now, oops, sorry. Keep trying to like click on things to like emphasize them, but I keep advancing the slide accidentally. Um, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Anyway, all right, I won't lay too much stress on the Kai because we're not really sure. I'm not really sure about that anyway, but I don't think it matters too much. Because one way or the other, it doesn't, it's not the kind of but, which is a sort of reversal 
of what came before, right? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin anymore. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Your fellowship with God, right? Walk in the light as he is in the light. And if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? Um, and that's, that's, that's where he goes, right? That's where he is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, both of those things at the same time. Um, this, I think, this verse in this way, this transition really seems to me to encapsulate John's vision for the what now, right? We talked about that before. What now? So Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has ascended. What now? What now? So we can have koinonia with God. What does that look like? Right? What does that look like? And the two things that it looks like is that you may not sin. If you are walking in fellowship with God, you are not sinning. In as much as you are sinning, you are in darkness, right? Um, when so you're not because God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, right? So if you are sinning, you are not walking in the light. But you can get back into the light, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, right? And I think in context. I think he's clearly not talking about the past there, right? Um, about, um, by the way, I was, um, I was just about to say, he's not talking about, you know, when you were saved, when you were, um, uh, when you, uh, you know, like when you were saved is a word that, of course, modern evangelicals use a lot, right? I don't see any analog to that concept in the way that John is describing this here. And I think that that's a really important thing, actually. And it seems to go along with his metaphor. Um, We tend to like to think in these kinds of stable terms, right? Like, I am saved. I am not saved, right? I was not saved. Now I'm saved, right? I'm in this state of grace, right? I'm in this. There's lots of different vocabulary that's been used um, over, uh, over the years, right, to describe, like, the stable state in which one is, right? One was this and one is now that. Um, That's not how John's talking about any of this at all. Um, Exactly, as Randall says, this is all present tense, right? Um, It's about how we walk. It's about how we walk, how we are to walk. Um, The only deviation, I think, from the just the, the the sort of the present tense sense of this whole paragraph is verse 10 if we say that we have not sinned when he goes into the perfect there and that's why i do think that he's talking about have never sinned like 
if we are, as we look back onto, you know, if you say that you don't need cleansing, right, then you do the truth to be a liar and his word is not in us, right? And that's what we talked about last time. But that's the only place where he's leaving this. The rest of it is all about how we are now. Um, and we like to, it's hard because I don't want to, um, my goal here, not my goal. I don't think the point is that like we're supposed to remain in suspense and doubt. Um, I think the idea, uh, there's nothing wrong with, you know, resting in God. Um, it's not that you have to worry like, Oh my goodness. Am I, am I, um, you know, am I leaving Koinonia with God, except you should kind of focus on whether or not you're leaving Koinonia with God. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not about anxiety. It's not the tone. Um, but there is an acknowledgement. Um, uh, there is an acknowledgement that this is a continuous walk and you have to keep walking. You have to keep walking. Um, it's a living and dynamic thing. Like if you stop walking, if you, on the one, like you can rest, like there is rest in God. That's, it's not the point, but, um, but you have to, you have to keep walking. And when you walk, you're either going to walk in the light or you're going to walk in the darkness. Those are the only two options, right? You're either in the sun or you're in the shade, right? You're in the shadows. Um, and he is not, he does not talk about like a category of being accepted and everything being okay. Like that's, that's just not the language that he uses here. I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if you do sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father. Um, yeah, exactly. If the walking is life, then to stop walking is to die. That's exactly, that's exactly it. You can't, um, you're either, you're either, walking in your growing in your koinonia with God or you're moving away. There's no, there's no stasis. There's no stasis here. Um, a part of me really wants to give, like would really want to give reassurance here. Right. A lot of that's one of the lessons that I would want to take from this. Like, don't worry. It's okay. Like, don't be anxious. I feel really sensitive to that. Like, um, because I certainly think that a life which is fraught with anxiety about whether or not one is in proper fellowship with God is very much not uh, a, a life of complete joy, right? Um, and so that seems, that whole attitude, an attitude of anxiety and worry um, about whether one's doing the right things, right? Um, that is clearly outside, um, that is, that seems to me not just outside that is, um, does not at all seem to me the life that John is describing here. And yet, um, although I want to give like reassurance to say, don't be, don't be anxious. It's, it's, it's okay. It is okay. Um, but you, you do have to walk in koinonia with God. 
Um, and if you don't, I know in my own personal experience, whenever I, I don't know how many times, <laughs> hundreds of times I've gone through this cycle in my own life. Maybe some of you can relate to this too. You come to a place where you are, you feel like you've got things together spiritually, right? Like things are going really, really well. You feel really close to God. Uh, you feel God working in and through you in many places in your life. And then you're like, okay, this is awesome. I just want to stay exactly here, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, and then like routine creeps in and I stop um, like thinking about it. And then I, the next thing I know, I'm, I've fallen back into old habits of thought and I'm, you know, I'm talking like I used to talk and thinking like I used to think and acting like I used to act. And I'm like, dude, wait a second. I didn't, what happened? Like, I didn't do anything. I didn't, you know, make a turn. Uh, I, I, but, um, um, but yeah, I kind of stopped walking. Um, you have to remain, you, I think you do have to remain active. You do have to keep walking in the light. Um, but um, anyway, but the embrace of the thing, like this is the, and if anyone sins, the second half is clearly the anti-anxiety statement, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, Jesus Christ, the righteous is still there. Let's look at that for a second, because, of course, this is a direct reference back to verse 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us uh, from all unrighteousness. Um, uh, the righteousness, we're, we're looking at the parallel there, right? How it's often translated, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, um, but that conceals the direct parallel, the righteousness of God and our unrighteousness um, uh, that, it, that from which we're being cleansed, right? That the righteousness of God is what gives us our righteousness, right? What cleanses us uh, and makes us righteous. Well, there's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate with the Father. And the reference back that this gives to verse 9 suggests really clearly, like, if anyone sins, You've been cleansed. You've been cleansed of all sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness. Remember, all was used in both cases. Both are really extreme statements. You've been cleansed from all sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness. And if you sin again, well, there's Jesus Christ, the righteous, waiting, right? And therefore, the cleansing. It's, it's back to verse 9, if we confess our sins. Um, which seems to be an ongoing thing rather than a mere statement of our nature, like our sin nature or something like that, right? If we confess our sins individually, those, in, those plural sins that we commit, then he is faithful, not just righteous, faithful. He will stand ready to do it again and again. And I think that's what he's referring to there in the second half of chapter two, verse one. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, by the way, I, it's really easy in my brain to skip over the word Christ, right? Like Jesus Christ to like 
think of that phrase, Jesus Christ, as his name, essentially, right? But I think it's very important not to do that. The word Christ is a very important word, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, right? Jesus Christ, this refers to his, his role as the Messiah, um, the Messianic king priest, right? It means he is, he is Lord. Yeah, it, it means anointed one, right? That's what Messiah means, absolutely, right? Um, and um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, anointed one, which is what brings in, I said king priest, that's why, right? That's what brings it. It's one of the things that kings and priests have in common is they were both anointed, right? Um, and both of those ideas, the idea of king and the idea of priest, both are connected with this idea of Messiah, right? The, the, the uh, Hebrew concept, right, from the Hebrew Bible of Messiah. Um, Jesus, Messiah, the righteous, King Jesus, right? King, priest, Jesus, the righteous. Um, he is our advocate with the Father, and that's a big deal. If Jesus, the priest king, the righteous one, is our advocate, we're in a pretty good place. Maybe we don't really need to be anxious, right? We don't need to be anxious, because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So um, we don't have to worry, but we do have to be aware. We do have to be deliberate in how we act. Don't sin. Stop it. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Don't sin. And when you do sin, we have an advocate. Now, let's, um, let's talk about advocate. This is the word that completely blew my mind. Um, and I am hoping there's somebody who can explain this to me because I don't think I get it. Um, the word is paraclete, paracleton. This word is only used in one other place in the New Testament, of course, and most of you will know where that is. It's what Jesus says to the apostles when he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming, right? But if I go, I shall send unto you another comforter in the King James, right? I shall send unto you another paracleto. Uh, that's, that's the only other time. This, oh, let me... Let me say it another way around. The only other place in the New Testament where this Greek word is used, other than that passage where Jesus is telling his disciples about the, the Holy Spirit coming later on, um, is this right here. This verse is the only other place in the entire New Testament, apart from that passage where Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, that this word paraclete is used. Now, it seems, on the one hand, from all I can see, I'm pretty sure advocate is the translation everywhere. Uh, let's see, advocate, uh, um, advocate in King James, NIV advocate, NRSV advocate, CEV, 
Um, okay, CV, CEV. But if you do sin, Jesus Christ always does the right thing. That must mean Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay. So that's characterizing his righteousness and he will speak to the father for us. So it doesn't use a noun. It just kind of, um, but it talks about advocate, speak to the father for us. That's interesting. It's interesting. Kind of like that actually. Um, oh, that is fantastic. A priest friend. We have a, the message says, but if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the father, father, priest friend. <laughs> On the one hand, I kind of love that. On the other hand, I find it kind of funny because they say that like it's a thing, right? I, um, is that a thing? I don't know if that's, I mean, I, you can have friends that are priests and priests that are friends, I guess. As they just kind of take these two concepts and just jam them together. I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I'm not sure whether I dislike it or love it. I'm, it's, I'm, not, I'm not positive there. But anyway, okay. Um, so, yes. Um, anyway, so this uh, translation, we have an advocate with the Father. Um, the immediate context, right? We have an advocate, um, should sin, an advocate we have. With the Father, Proston Patera, um, an advocate with the Father, somebody to speak on our behalf with the Father. And certainly the use, my understanding is that outside the New Testament, the word paraclete is often a legal term, right? Mediator, intercessor, um, somebody who will speak on our behalf, right? Um, who comes alongside us. Um, I, this was the, this was a word for like your defense attorney, right? Um, uh, so I guess in a sense, okay. I don't find much difficulty with this word in this verse, in this context. So I guess I should let it go where I have a harder time. is the other context, um, uh, but if I go, I shall send you another paraclete. But as this is not a Bible study on the gospel of John, I think I'll not worry about that right now. Um, about other than to say, the paraclete, right? As sometimes the Holy Spirit is called, um, in reference to that passage, just using the Greek word without translation. Um, I've always identified the term paraclete exclusively with the Holy Spirit. And here's John in the epistle using the word of Jesus, not of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, you can do Trinitarian things there if you want to, I, but I see no evidence that he is. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit um, later in the book, later in the epistle. But he's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. I see no reason to think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's not even uh, gestured in that direction yet. Um, but um, anyway, 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, praise. I'm kind of trying to justify a whole sidebar looking at, uh, you know, looking at Paraclete uh, in the uh, uh, in the gospel as well. Um, uh, yeah. Ooh, you're right, Devora. In the gospel of John, he doesn't say, I'm going to send you the paraclete. He says, I'm going to send you another paraclete. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. That does, that helps me a little bit. It still kind of rocks my world <laughs> in that again, paraclete had always been something I just associated with the Holy spirit. Um, but, um, but yeah, and I can see where, I mean, that word is translated. Well, in the, a King James comforter, right. Um, it, when it's used in John, right. It's not advocate. I shall send you another advocate. Is, is there a single translation out there that uses the word advocate for that? Tempted to check. Um, but I, I will try to resist. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, cause I don't think it is. I don't think it's translated at uh, comforter, helper, supporter, um, that sense of advocacy, even of mediation doesn't really seem to be involved in most translations of the gospel of John's sense. Um, Okay, fine. I'm breaking down. Um, let's look at Bible Gateway because I can switch back and forth more easily here. Okay, okay. Let's start with the NASB. And where are we going? We're going to Paracleton, John 14. All right. Let's look at John 14 in the NASB. Okay. Um, all right. Right. The section they sub the Holy Spirit. Okay. I will ask the Father. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. By the way, this. You will notice that I am deleting all section headings like this when I'm putting the text on my slides. Um, I almost always find those reductive, um, in unpleasant ways, but anyway, okay. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the father and he will give you another paraclete so that he may be with you forever. The paraclete is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Okay. Um, now let's look at that passage. Helper and helper. Yeah. So helper is uh, the translation that we get there. Um, I'm just thinking about advocate here. I will ask the fine. He will send you, let's just say another advocate so that he may be with you forever. The advocate is the spirit of truth whom you, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. 
Okay. Okay, let's see. What else we got? Let's look at the NIV. Uh, what are we? Oh, here we go. NIV. Go. In the NIV, we get, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Hey, okay, we do get advocate in the NIV. He'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, but you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. Um, wait a second. All right. Okay. Let's do another one. Let's look at the CEV. CEV says, if you love me, you'll do as I command. Then I will ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's just a cop-out. That's an utter incomplete cop-out. See, it's that kind of thing that drives me crazy about interpretive translations, more interpretive translations. Like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I, I also, it's not that I think they're wrong, right? But I think he didn't say Holy Spirit for a reason. Like, just to ditch the metaphor entirely, who will help? Okay. Is that it? Who will help you? And always be with you? Um, yeah. Oh, man. I am an I am an unfan of that. Let's look at the NRSV. Okay. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Okay. There it is again. To be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Okay. Okay. There we go. So the NIV and the NRSV both do give advocate here. They don't, the NRSV doesn't use the help idea at all. Okay. I can't help myself. I'm curious. What does the message say? Let's see. If you love me, show it by doing what I've told you. I will talk to the Father, and he'll provide you another friend. Not a priest friend this time, just a friend. So that you will always have someone with you. A friend so you always have someone with you. So this is just company. This is not uh, no legal sense involved here at all. This friend is the spirit of truth. Okay. So no advocacy, no intercession, no, just, just, just your friend. Okay. All right. Well, interesting. Interesting. Um, okay. All right. Um, and digression. In, right, hang on. Where was I? Okay, there we go. Um, in the epistle, in this verse, 
I do agree with the practically universal translation of advocate here. It does seem to be implied in the whole structure of his syntax here. If we sin, we have an advocate with the father towards the with pros pros tell me about pros that's with i i I said toward because i remembered pros and i was thinking in latin uh so um um does it have any of the sense of the latin pro i mean i assume that the latin uh, preposition pro comes from the greek preposition pros but i may be wrong about that it does mean toward plus the accusative okay all right all right. I thought so. I thought so. At least I was assuming so. Um, perhaps unconsciously at first, but yes. Okay. So towards. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Fine. Good. Good. So yes, in that context too, it's clearly talking about like advocate intercession. It's not just like your buddy, right? There's, there's, it's not just like your friend. Um, I mean, as I understand, that's a theoretical, um, that's the justification for translating paraclete as comforter, right? The King James famous translation of paraclete as comforter back in John 14, right? I shall send you another comforter. Um, someone who comes, uh, alongside you, right? Um, uh, not necessarily just in a legal context, right? Your advocate who, who like your defense attorney or whatever, um, but just somebody who comes, who comes alongside, right? And so therefore um, could be a, a helper, a supporter. That's why all of that, that the helping and supporting um, constellation of, ide- of ideas that we see associated um, with, in most of the translations kind of hit that note in John 14, Right. Um, it's, which makes sense in the context of what Jesus is. Jesus is talking about his departure. Right. Um, and he said, and when I go, I'm going to send you another somebody else. Right. To help and support and comfort you. Um, uh, whereas here. The toward the father with the father in the direction of the father. Right. Um, this is not just like I'm going to give you like a. Uh, help with the father exactly right though i guess maybe in some sense that but um comfort right you don't comfort you know i don't give somebody else comfort toward that other person right um but um anyway yeah yeah so i I advocate does you know the 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 legal sense of it does seem to me more um appropriate here especially since in verse two, we're going to get the word propitiation concerning which more next week. I'm not even going to, I'm going to go close to that with a 10 foot pole this week. Um, next week we'll get out the 10 foot pole, but, um, uh, but not this week. So, so yes. Okay. So we have an advocate with the sense also uh, there's, there's an intimacy with that with somebody who's coming alongside, right? Um, not just somebody who speaks for our behalf, like remotely, if you know what I mean, right? Like, um, uh, it's not something that's handed down. This is somebody who stands next to you and speaks on your behalf, right? Um, an advocate toward the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, um, Jesus is alongside us. And isn't this a beautiful thing back to the context of 
why he's writing these things to us that we may not sin. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Um, so if we sin, then we've stopped walking in the light or we've stepped out of the light and into the shadow, right? And what do we find there in the shadow? Jesus Christ, the righteous. They're with us. Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, right? Um, Waiting to speak for us as an advocate to the Father. Um, So again, this is how I think how I think John does both things, right? How he's able to both say, he's able to say, do not sin, no compromise, stop sinning, just stop sinning. If you are sinning, if you are continuing to sin, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I write these things to you that you may not sin. Walk in the light as he is in the light where there is no darkness at all. That's your job. That's what you should do. That's what koinonia with God looks like. Walking in the light as he is in the light. And if you step out of the light, if you fail, and, you know, this one verse suggests that likely. If you fail, if you step into the shadow, what do you find there? Jesus Christ, the righteous, standing there as your advocate. Your advocate with the Father. Um, yeah, that in this way, and this is, I never thought about this before in this sense, but it does seem to work. Another really beautiful way of understanding the Trinity, of understanding the relationship between God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, right, is that God... In the like, God as we as He is revealed to us in the Old Testament couldn't do this, right? The holy God, um, the God whom the like uncleanness cannot approach, right? Now I know there's a lot of grace in the old. The whole system that God's grace is shown in the entire system of Old Testament law, right? The Book of Leviticus is a whole work of grace, right? Uh, teaching you how 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 can you approach. Um, uh, you know, the book of Leviticus starts with um, Moses being outside the tabernacle and he can't get in. Uh, he can't get into the tabernacle. God is speaking to him from inside the tabernacle and Moses is outside. The, how can anybody get in the tabernacle, right? They built the tabernacle. God comes and lives there and now they can't get in, right? And then they get instructions. Here's how you can come in. Um, here's what you can do to enable yourself to come in. So there's grace all through this. I'm not trying to say, I'm not, I'm not trying to characterize the Hebrew Bible in, in, in that kind of a crude way. And yet God himself, again, even, even this, this is shown, like you can't come into the presence of the Holy, you'd be destroyed. <clears throat> That's repeated again and again. If you bring uncleanness into the presence of God, it's a bad thing usually for you, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but Jesus Christ was different, right? The incarnate Jesus was different. Um, He can come alongside us, even when we're in the shadow. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, right? But when we go into the darkness, when we step out of koinonia with God and sin, right, by sinning, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's still righteous, right? He's still righteous, but he's still righteous and can reach into the darkness, right? Uh, uh, step into the darkness to come alongside us in order to speak to the to advocate to the Father on our behalf that we might be cleansed, they be faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, right? Repeat as necessary. Um, but I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Um, that's not what koinonia looks like. Sinning is antipathetic to koinonia with God. If you are in fellowship with God, there is no darkness at all in God. Um, yeah. But I do think that that advocacy um, that's where the surety comes from, right? We want, we, I think that we, we seek the kind of surety that says everything's okay now, right? But that does not seem to be the kind of surety that John wants to give us. The surety that John wants to give us is Jesus is faithful. Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, the priest king. Jesus Christ, the righteous is always there, will always be there. If anyone sits, notice, hang on, let me look at if. Um, and if anyone should sin. Okay, so this is definitely an if. Um, because we're back into the subjunctive. That's what I thought. If anyone should sin. Yes. Yes. We're back into the subjunctive again um, with Aeon here. So if we go back for a second to earlier on in what I am now more firmly thinking of as this same paragraph, if we should say yep, Aeon... And, and yeah, all the way through. Okay, it is. So it's the same construction that he's been using. If we walk, if we say, if we confess, if we say, if anyone sins. Same thing. If then. If you sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Same pattern. Um, well, no, not exactly the same pattern. Not exactly the same pattern. Same syntax, but the same pattern, the pattern, the if-then pattern before was, if we do this, then this happens. If we walk in the light, then we have, if we say this, then we lie and do not practice the truth, right? If we walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sins, okay, hang on a second, hang on a second. Those aren't even all exactly the same. They are not. The negatives, yes. Okay, notice, notice that now I'm looking even more closely at this. The positives, 
verse seven and nine are both if then in the sense of if we do this, then this happens. If we walk in the light, then another thing occurs. Well, two things in that case. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If this happens, then that. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, then that, right? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. Verse six, eight, and 10, the negative verses, right? The bad, the verses about are doing bad things, right? Um, aren't if then in the sense of saying, if we do this, then this happens, right? They are, if we do this, and the second half of it is a description. If, if this is true, then this is true, right? If we say this, then we lie. Then that thing that we said is a lie. If we say we have no sin, then we are deceiving ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar, right? So it's sort of pointing out, pointing to the reality of what is, if that other thing is true. If this happens, then this is what it really is, right? Then this is what it boils down to. Then this is, if you say this, this is what you've really said, right? Then verses seven and nine say, if we do this, then this other thing happens, right? Verse one, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, is more like the pattern of seven and nine, but it's not exactly the same pattern, though. Um, or maybe it is. Maybe it is, and that's a beautiful thing. Okay, so hang on. Do you notice what I'm seeing here? I hope that the difference, the shades of difference in these if-then patterns is clear. I don't know if maybe I haven't made that clear enough. Um, but the if-then statement in verse one. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father. That's, that's not on, if you do this, then this happens, right? Um, having an advocate is not, doesn't follow upon sinning, the action of sinning. Like you don't cause the advocacy to come into effect because of sinning. Exactly. Right. Um, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father. Um, the if is different. The if is not theorizing an action that causes it. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm failing words to uh, try to make the difference. It's a, it's a subtle difference. The second half is not a consequence of the first. Um, I'm trying to make a parallel. Um, the verses in seven and nine, seven and nine work as if then statements in the sense of If hmm, okay, okay, hang on. I'm trying to, I'm, tr I'm trying to make parallels here. Sorry, I'm, this is, I'm, 
something I'm just noticing and thinking about very spontaneously. So bear with me as I try to explain this, or if you have any, if you, if you think you see where I'm trying to go, I, I wouldn't mind help. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Verse one sounds like the kind of if statement that works like, um, if there's a fire, like if you're giving instructions to your babysitter, right? If something catches on fire, the fire extinguisher is under the sink, right? That's not an if-then statement in the sense of like, if you perform this action, then this other thing will occur, right? Um, in the in in the case of the like if if something catches on fire the fire extinguisher is under the sink right that's a comfort right to know that there's a fire extinguisher um, but it's not a cause and effect thing not like if we walk in the light the blood of Jesus's son cleanses us from all sin right that's an if then statement in the sense of like if you take a shower the dirt will come off right like if you step in the shower you know, it, like if you're dirty and you step in the shower, you'll get clean, right? It's more like that, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Um, you know, like uh, that's more like if you ask for help, I will give it, right? Um, that's, that's, and you see how that's different? See how that the logical structure, how, how, how it's a different kind of statement. It's a different statement to say, if you ask for help, I'll, I'll help you. It's very different from if there's a fire, the fire extinguisher is under the sink, right? Um, yeah. Now, maybe fire is not a, um, a good analogy. Maybe something like, um, you know, if you spill something, the paper towels are right there. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you get in trouble, I am here for you. Randall suggests. Yes. If you get in trouble, I am here for you. Exactly. The second half is not predicated on the first half. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly the difference that I'm seeing. However, here's the beautiful thing, right? The beautiful thing is, um, the structure of the paragraph places these things in parallel. They're not the same. But think about, if we think about this, there are three different, um, three different kinds of if-then statements that are being made in this paragraph. There's the negative one that says, um, I mean, just I, honestly, I, I almost just like paraphrasing what he actually says, right? If you say that, you're fooling yourself, right? If you say that, you're fooling yourself. Pattern, that's pattern one. Pattern two is if you need help, if you ask for help, I will help you. And pattern three is... um. If you spill something, the paper towels are right there, right? Those are the three if-then patterns that we see here. Um, and 
the first pattern. If you say this, you're fooling yourself. Right? Or like, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. <laughs> right? It's sort of the, the, the sense of like, if you believe that, you're fooling yourself. Right? Um, those are the statements about the negative things, the, the things that we, you know, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, if we say we have no sin, if we say that we have not sinned, these are the things that are that first, that first pattern of if then statement. If, if we say this, then this is the reality. Right. Um, if we say or believe this, I will tell you the truth that underlies this. Like I'll, I will, I will, I will reveal, right. The reality underneath it. Then we have, if you ask for help, I will give it right. If this thing occurs, then this other thing will occur as a consequence of it. Right. And then we have, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father. If you spill something, the paper towels are right there. Um, and it's a it's a subtle shift. I say subtle because they're structured. They're all structured exactly the same way, right? They're all they're given to us in parallel. In Every single verse, right? Every single sentence. Except for the first sentence of this, the little children sentence. Um, but apart from that direct address, explaining his purpose, pointing to his purpose, Every single other sentence, since this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, has been of this same if-then structure. It's like how he's starting all of his sentences. If this, then that. If this, then that. If this, then that. And I agree, the little children's sentence is still a cause and effect structure. And that's why I paused for a second when I said that, because it's exactly what I was thinking too. Um, Purpose of cause and effect. I'm writing these things unto you so that. You may not sin. I am doing this so that this might happen, right? Yeah, even even that, you're right. He's still thinking in those terms. Um, every single sentence that he has is going if, then, if, then, if, then. But they're not all the same if, thens. However, I don't think, on the one hand, there are these distinctions. They're not all the same. But I think that the pattern of them, the way that he goes back and forth, the way that he repeats this pattern again and again, I think that he's suggesting a parallel. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Is not the same. The, lo- the logic is not the same there. It's not the same to say, if you ask for help, I'll help you, as to say, if you spill anything, the paper towels are right there. That's, they're not the same. Logically. And yet, the way he parallels them suggests 
a meaning which crosses between these two things, right? Because there is a sense in which our sin does cause the advocacy. Um, What I hear when I put those two things in parallel, right? If you confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the father, right? When I put those in parallel, it begins to, um, it begins to sound like, yes, you do cause the advocacy. It's like, you don't have to ask for help, right? Just sinning, just committing a sin. That's how faithful Jesus, Messiah, the righteous is. Um, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father. He doesn't say, if you ask, if you request an advocate, he'll be there in a flash. Doesn't even say that. He skips that step. He's just said it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. I think he's, in a sense, he's alluding back to that, right? But the part that he skips over, the part where we confess and ask for help, is an important step. He emphasized how important that step was. And by now having stated it in verse nine, and now two verses later, like two sentences later, he's coming back and saying it again, but leaving out that part, right? As if like, just, just no, just no. Before you ask, know that if you sin, you have an advocate with the father, that, that Jesus, that Messiah, Jesus, King priest, Jesus, the righteous one, is standing there ready. We have an advocate with the Father. If you step off, if you step out of the light and find yourself in the shadow, Jesus is right there. Um, And that's a beautiful thing. Almost, and you can see even thinking back to the the illustration I was making, right? Um, If you spill something, the paper towels are right there right? Sometimes even that can have that same sort of sense, right? Like, I know that you might spill something. I know that what you're doing, a mess is likely to happen. So I've I've, I've set out the paper towels for you right there, right? So that when slash if it happens, um, you can take care of it. It is, again, you don't even have to ask for help, right? I've already helped um, in advance, right? Um, so um, anyway, I'm sorry if that felt very labored, but I was, I've been talking about the if-thens a lot, and I was really interested to back up and say the more I was reading them, the more I was noticing more and more of those differences in patterns. And I think that seeing those differences is important. But to me, the end point of it is to see how he's paralleling all three of those different forms together so that in the end um in the end there's a way in which i think he's combining these like those three different logical relations are when we think of the cause and effect as the what we do on the one hand, the if is the what we do, right? And the then is 
what God does, what will happen, right? What are the consequences? So if the if is us and the then is God, there's a sense in which all three of these things do point to the same thing. Hey, I, I think so. I think so. Um, that the pattern is the same, even pattern one. If we say this, then we're fooling ourselves, right? If we do this, then here's the reality that underlies that. I think that even that pattern is true in the other things. If we confess our sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Like if, if this happens, if we say this, well, then here's the reality. The reality, if we confess our sins, the, the reality that underlies that, like what just happened is, you know, when we confess our sins, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Like that's, that's the reality of confession. It's the reality of walking in the light is that we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's not like, that's not like an eventual thing. It's, it's restating. It's showing us the truth. I think all three of those patterns really kind of come together. Um, okay. All right. I'm out of time. Uh, I'm over time. So I'm going to stop here next time. Um, we're going to, I think probably conclude this second paragraph. Um, uh, tell me what you guys think, but I'm more and more convinced that verses one and two really are part of this same paragraph. Um, uh, a lot of people put breaks in between two and three. Um, and I agree with that. What I don't think I can agree with is breaking the chapter at the end of verse 10. Um, but anyway, next time we'll actually finish the paragraph, what I think will really be the end of this paragraph um, and uh, see where John ends up. We get, end up with a big rhetorical flourish at the end of this paragraph, right? So we will check out the ending next time. Um, so I look forward to that. Thanks everybody for joining me. Okay, that's it for this week. I'll be back with another episode soon as we continue our march through 1 John. I'm glad you could join me. Godspeed.